We are headed for John chapter 17. John chapter 17, as you're headed in your Bibles to John chapter 17. Let's do a little bit of trivia about the 4th of July since we're on that weekend. See how you do with this. July 4th, 1776 was the day when the Revolutionary War began. British surrendered. Declaration was written. It was adopted. The U.S. Constitution was ratified or the first national elections. Which one? It's one of those. D, E, E. Let's see what we got, okay? Uh, actually, it is not E. It is D when it was finally, when it was adopted. Which of the founding fathers said this? Give me liberty or give me death. George Washington, Jefferson, Henry, Franklin, Arnold, or John Wayne? C is right. Patrick Henry. Here we go. According to the Declaration, where does government get its power? Constitution, military, representatives, tax collection, consent of the governor or the woman? What did you say? F? Yeah. It is E, the consent of the governed. According to uh, history, how many delegates signed the Declaration of Independence? How many? It's one of those is correct. It is D. It is 56 signed the declaration. Here we go. Who is the only delegate we know for sure? There's a strong possibility there was two. But who is the only one we know for sure that signed the document on July 4th? Was it Washington, Madison, Adams, Jefferson, Hancock? It was John Hancock was the only one we know for absolutely certain. Who said at the adoption of the declaration, all of us shall hang together or most surely we'll all hang separately, Jefferson, Franklin, Adams, Washington, Judas, or the stick man? It was Franklin. Absolutely. You guys are good. On what day did most of the delegates actually sign the Declaration of Independence? The 2nd, the 4th, August, September, December. Which one? It was not A or B. It is C. Yeah, August 2nd was when most of them signed it. Who was the primary author of the declaration? Jefferson, Franklin, Adams, Robert G. Lee, Abraham Lincoln, or Jules Verne's? It is A. Wow, you guys are great. When he wrote the declaration, he did it in his carriage on a two-week trip to Philadelphia for the urgent session. He copied much from the French documents he gathered while a U.S. ambassador in France. He did it with only the help of his black servant, Linus. He did it in the original in Greek so that nobody could fool with it and tamper with it until the final draft. He did it on his laptop. One of those is true. The others are made up. What would you say? C? No. A. A. No. B. No. D. No. Jefferson had a device he called his laptop. And so he could copy from one to another. So he wrote it. And he called... No, it's a historical fact. Okay. Terms have changed. Here we go. What newspaper first printed the Declaration of Independence? The Philadelphia Eagle, New York Times, Washington Post, Pennsylvania Evening, National Enquirer, Lebanon Daily News, or the Fish Wrapper? Which one did you say? D is absolutely right. Pennsylvania Evening Post was the first. When were fireworks first used to celebrate the 4th of July? The first year, the second year, 1812, 56, 1901, 1956. Yeah, one out of five chance. A is not right. What did you say? 
I can't tell if the, if you're, the E is E, D, C, or B. I know it's not A. It's not C. It's not F. It is B. One year. One year afterwards. Who was the only president born on the 4th of July? It's not John Quincy Adams. It is not Reagan. Would you say D? D. Calvin Coolidge is absolutely right. Okay. July 4th is known to be, I'm going to give you several facts here. Is it the 4th of July or not? Is it the most collect phone calls on this day, more fires reported, more car crash fatalities, more hot dogs, most, most people, uh, one day of the year when most, uh, there's more births in America or more deaths or more parties or barbecues? Let's do the first one. Is the 4th of July the most collect phone calls are made? That is Father's Day. Is it, B, more fires are reported on this day in America? Yes, yeah, than any other day. Most car crash fatalities in America. That is yes. More hot dogs will be eaten today than any other day. That is true. More birthdays, people born on this one day more than any other day in America. That is October 5th. Has the most deaths... December 25th is the day. Has the most parties. New Year's Day, you're right. New Year's Day. Most barbecues. Yes, absolutely. Here we go. The song Yankee Doodle, okay, was sung by British troops to mock the Americans, was written by Francis Scott Key's brother, became a popular tune after the revolution by the northerners mocking the southerners, was outlawed in Britain during the war, and was the first tune adopted. It is A. It was done during the French-Indian War. They did it to mock the Americans, and they adopted it. Here we go. How many of the apostles were brothers to Jesus? I'm not talking spiritual. I'm talking physical brothers. It is right. Zero. None of them were his brothers. How many of the 12 apostles were brothers? James and John, you know. Okay. Do you know any other sets? Peter and Andrew. Know of any others? There's three sets of brothers. James, Les, and Jude or Thaddeus. They are brothers. How many were from Galilee? It's either zero, one, two, all the way to twelve. It is not twelve. It's really close to it. It's not ten, but you're really close. It's 11, yeah, yeah. Every one of them, but Judas. Judas was the only one. Remember we said in the class that Judas, that when he walked away that evening and they said, go and do your business, and it was like, why didn't the others catch on? Well, he could have been meeting with family because he was from that region. How many of them were fishermen? Can't say 12 because we know at least one of them. Okay. It's probably more than four. Yeah, the number's kind of, we're not really sure about it. We know that all sets of brothers were, and then the suggestion is Nathaniel and Philip probably were as well. So we probably have anywhere from six to eight of them were fishermen. How many of them were scattered the night that Jesus was arrested? How many skedaddled? All of them but 11, because who didn't skedaddle that evening? 
No? Judas was already gone. Okay. Yeah. Jude, no, they all skedaddled from the Garden of Gethsemane, but Judas had already killed himself by this point. Here you go. How many of the twelve wrote Scripture later on? Just think. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Okay, did Matthew, is Matthew an apostle? Okay, so that's one. Mark? Mark's not an apostle. Okay. Luke? Luke, I'm not counting Paul, I'm counting the original 12. Okay. Luke wasn't part of the original 12. Was John part of the first 12? Yes. Okay. Paul, we're not counting because he wasn't part of the first 12. Peter? Okay. And who? Somebody said James. Was James part of the first 12? There was a James, but the James who wrote the, uh, the book of James was a half-brother of Jesus and wasn't even saved at this point. There's one other scripture, one other. You got Matthew, Peter, and Jude. Jude, the one who wrote uh, Jude was one of the first 12. Here we go. We're in John chapter 17. We're talking about that last week of Jesus' life. In fact, we're in the last evening of his life before he is going to be crucified. He has celebrated the Passover meal with the disciples. He has left the upper room. He's headed for the Garden of Gethsemane. In route, he's taught about the vine and the branches. He's taught about friendship, that he says, I no longer count you as servants, but you're friends, and I'm sharing with you all kinds of details. And then he predicted, and we looked at this last week about a lot of the persecution that they're going to experience. And then John chapter 17, this is going to be what we would call in biblical terms, this is the Lord's Prayer. The other one that he gave in Matthew 6 was an example or a model for praying, but in John 17 he's actually going to pray. This prayer is really interesting as you go through it. Uh, it, is, it appears to be either he did it at Gethsemane and they recorded it later, or he's doing it right as they approach Gethsemane. And uh, as they get in into Gethsemane. They have to leave Jerusalem. They have to go down into Kidron Valley. This is the stench of blood is amazing because they've had some 200 and some thousand animal sacrifice. This would be, the creek here would be flowing with blood. And so you've got that smell in the air. It's very pungent, this Passover idea and the slaughter of it. And it's the, it's the evening time. It's dark time. And they're headed down into this region and uh, headed for Gethsemane because legally they have to stay in Jerusalem. Passover night, Jewish law by this point. You have to to reside in the confines of Jerusalem. And uh, by the way that they, they uh, t- uh, divided the territory, they couldn't go back to Bethany where they've stayed the last few nights because Bethany is outside of the, the um, uh, parameters of Jerusalem. So you've got to stay in Gethsemane, which is still within the confines, considered the confines of the boundaries, the borders of Jerusalem. Jesus gets there uh, as he's going there and he's praying and he's, uh, the ground is covered. He's going to start praying and he starts making comments like in chapter 17 verse 1. He starts praying and he says, my hour has come. The very first thing. He knows that with the smell, with everything, that this is represented what he's going to do. And now is his lengthiest prayer recorded in scripture. There's 26 verses that we have and he prays in three different parts. He prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, and then he prays for the future church. That's us. And so you can divide it very simply by who he prays for. Now, something else, just note, that oftentimes when you look into any kind of text of Scripture, look for repetition. Look for words that 
uh, significant words that show up. There are several significant words that really are repeated an awful lot. There's the word about Father, while he's talking to the Father. There's the word glory. There's the idea of giving or have given. Okay, so there's a lot of interchange between him and the Father. And the world, he talks a lot about the world during this time as he's praying for his disciples and praying for the world. And so these are the words that show up an awful lot during this time. And so they help us to see the thematic prayer, the course of his prayer. When he's praying, the first part, verses 1 through 5, we would say it's when he's praying for himself. Look at how it reads. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that your son also may glorify you. As you have given him power over all the flesh that he should give eternal life to as many as you have given him. And this is life eternal that they might know you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, and you, that you, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on the earth. I have finished the work which you gave me to do. Oh, now, and now, O Father, glorify thou me with my own self, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Now, if you identify when he starts the prayer, he's doing exactly what he told us to do. When you pray, pray after this fashion. Our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Okay, he's going to do that right off the bat. He's going to practice what he preached. Then he's going to talk about glory. His glory. God's glory. And uh, that's something that we don't fully fathom, but the majesty of God Almighty. He acknowledges his hour has come. This is a theme through John, the Gospel of John, that Jesus understands he's on a divine timetable. Most of the time it has been his hour is not yet here. His hour is not yet come. Now he says, he acknowledges it is time. I have reached this is the moment that you have designed Father. This is the moment that I have come for and here it is. I'm hitting that, that very moment. I'm operating on your timetable. He mentions the divine ability, <clears throat> the divine power to give eternal life, and we're going to come back to that. He's going to talk about eternal life and how it's benefited us later on in the prayer. But he talks about it doesn't happen by man's power, but by divine power. Divine ability to be able to give eternal life. And then he makes the statement, I have finished your work. Now we've got to stop. What is the work that he is referring to when he says I have finished the work that you have given me? We could we can mention several things. <clears throat> excuse me, that during his ministry he talked about doing the works of God. Sometimes when he's done that, he's referred to the miracles and the message that he gave. This was the work which God has given me to do. The miracles, which by the way, the miracles were all designed to promote the message. And so the message is saying, he's saying, this is the job you gave me to go out and uh, my mission was to declare the truth. His training of the twelve was part of what he says is his job. So as to set up and prepare others to go on and to do the message that he and the and the um, and the the truth that he has shared to propagate it. He's going. He's talked about a lot already about his sacrifice and his coming sacrifice. It's been a theme that he has said: the seed has to fall into the ground and die. Lest I be uh, when uh, he talks about if I be lifted up, I will draw the whole world to me. He's talking about giving his life for another, and so he's, he made the comment earlier: no man takes my life, but I. I lay it down. Okay, and so his, part of his whole ministry, and he says, okay, I, I'm here at this precipice. I'm going to, now I've committed, I'm willing, and here I'm finishing your work. I have yet just to go through the final task of the death, burial, and uh, the crucifixion aspect. So he says, I, I'm here. 
I've, I've achieved what you wanted. And all of this was done to provide eternal life. Your work, your mission, your job for me was so that I could pass on eternal life to others. And so he says, I've done that. His only request, he's made several statements in his prayer. And so in his prayer, he's talked about God's glory, his glory, what's happened. Verse 5 is his singular request. Look in verse 5 and what does he ask the Father to do? Just one thing. Restore my what? Bless you. Restore me to my glory, to my pre-incarnate glory. That's it. That is all he's going to pray for, is restoring me to my pre-incarnate glory. By the way, this I think has play into what he prays in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, um, he says, let this what? Let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, whatever you will. Okay. The big question is, what is the cup? What is it that he's referring to? And we'll come back to that probably next week. But he has the point here, and it ties together with this comment. He says, return me to my pre-incarnate glory. In other words, after I've done and finished and totally carried through, uh, please restore me to where I was before. Fellowship with you. Um, reinstate me back into the glories of heaven, which we know the Father did at the resurrection and the ascension. And Philippians writes, and it says, God highly exalted him and given him a name above all names that he says that every knee will bow at him and it goes on talks about him being seated again at the glories of the Father. And so he has this one request for himself. Return me, restore me to my pre-incarnate glory. Then what he does is he shifts now. The next bulk of his prayer is for his immediate disciples, the 11 that are still faithful. And I would assume it includes the ladies who are faithful and even like in thought, even like John Mark who is who is involved but not one of the 11. And so he prays a prayer and it looks at times like it's not really requesting but he makes some statements. Watch what he, what he said. Verse 6. I have manifested your name unto the men which you have given me out of the world. Thine they were and you gave them to me and they have kept your word. Now they have known that all things whatsoever you have given are of me. For I have given unto them the words which you gave me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from you. They have believed that you did send me. I pray for them. I pray not for the world, but for them which you have given me, for they are yours. And all mine are thine, and thine are mine, and I am glorified in them. And now I am no more of this world, but these are in the world, and I come to you. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that you gave me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to you, and these things speak I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves." I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. And even as you have sent me into the world, even so have I also sent them into the world. And for their sakes I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified through the truth. Now when he begins... He basically makes some statements about the eleven and those and, and, and the extras. He makes some st- statements about he is he has revealed the Father. They have accepted. They have kept the word. Oh, by the way, let me throw this out to you. When you read that they have kept the word, is it true that they were one hundred percent true to the word of God and did absolutely everything perfectly? 
No, no. But in general, Jesus is saying, as an overall, they've been, they've been following me. They have been listening to what I've done. Now there's area for improvement, but they have been doing what they were supposed to do. And he makes a comment that they know you. They understand you. They know that I came from you. You're the one that's providing. And they've accepted the idea that I've come from heaven. So he's commending the twelve as he's talking to the Father. And he's saying how they have helped to promote me and to do my ministry by going out preaching, teaching, healing, doing those things. And then he asks the Father, after he says these statements, then he asks the Father for four different items for the disciples. He is going to pray for them and he prays these four different areas. He says, keep them united. Okay? Keep them united. And several times he says, keep, keep, keep. Keep them united, as he says in verse 11, which we already read, where he talks about, let them all be one, even as we are one. And so the idea is not a physical unity, but a spiritual unity. Keep them one. Keep them so. And by the way, this is a theme in this prayer. He prays multiple times for the unity of the saints, the saints who are following right now, and he'll make that the main theme of his prayer for those of us who believe in generations to come. And so he wants them to be united so that they would have peaceful relations one with another so as to promote the Word of God. Now, here's my question. Why does Jesus bother praying for those 11 disciples that they would have a unity of mind and of heart? Is there a reason why that's a big concern for him with those 11? Why? Okay. He wants them. But why in particular does he say these 11, I need to really pray about their unity? Is there any reason that they've displayed disunity? Have they? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, seriously. In the mealtime, did they show unity during the meal? No, not at all. In fact, they started arguing. And when he says to Peter, he says, Peter, or he says, Peter, you're going to deny me. And Peter says, I think all the rest of these guys will deny you, but not me. In fact, when they come to the Lord's Supper, what did they fail to do? The, the, the washing of the feet. Why was it that nobody washed one another's feet? Because on the way, according to Luke 22, that very evening, on the way to the meal, what were they doing? They were arguing over who was the greatest. Okay. And so these guys have a tendency to have some conflict between them. In fact, what do you think might add to some of that conflict? Go back to what we just did in trivia. Okay. You say fishermen. Okay, because the differences between them. Okay, some are fishermen, some are tax collectors. Tax collectors get along with everybody, right? There's another guy in this group who is called the Sakari or the Zealot. What historically did the Sakari or Zealots do to tax collectors? They were, they were the terrorists. They were the Jewish terrorists who would assassinate the tax collectors. So within the very 12, the fabric of the 12, you have mortal enemies. Now add to the fabric of the twelve what other contribution might create some conflicts between some of these people. We would say, well, maybe not. But in many cases, as you get older, do you get closer to your siblings? Or could there be some conflicts because we're siblings? Okay? Do siblings get along perfectly all the time? No. No. And so you've got several sets of siblings. And, and add to it, some of them are cousins. Okay? And so you've got family relations. they got the difference between them. And so there is going to be this fact. Some of these guys will fall worse than the others. Okay, he says you're all going to be scattered. But who of all of them really blows it in the next few hours after this, this time? 
Peter because he denies the Lord three times in a very public setting and everybody knows about it. Hey, can I throw something out here just totally off the side? People who question this whole account, whether it's historically accurate or not, did these guys exaggerate? The whole question in, in when we get into whether the Bible is true and there's high, it's called higher criticism. Some of that whole discussion is these guys probably added to the story later on and so this you can't trust the scriptures because they added later on. If people t- typically add to a story later on, how do they typically present themselves? Better, better. Do the disciples make themselves look like they made, they made some really bonehead decisions? Oh yeah, man, the Gospels portray them. You know, even Peter portrays himself as being an egghead at times. And so these guys, that, that is, an, uh, in that discussion of higher criticism, you throw that back out and it's like, well, yeah, well, this is an exception to the rule. Well, then it means it's an exception, period. The book is exceptional, that they would present themselves very, very clearly as who they are. And so there's going to come a factor that some are going to fall more than others. And Jesus is praying and saying, I want them to be united. I want them to be united. Afterwards, they're going to need who? Each other. They're going to need each other desperately. So he prays for them to be united. He also prays in verse 13 that they might have the joy, his joy, be fulfilled in their life. And so Jesus was praying. And by the way, this is an important part of prayer because right now, how are these guys feeling? Let not your heart be troubled. He says, I know that you are sorrowing. And so they're really, they're, they're, in, they're in disarray mentally, emotionally. He says, I want them to have joy. I want them to have joy. And one of the reasons that they need to have that joy is for the presentation of the truth. How do you go out and present truth and say, I am so excited to be a believer. You should get saved so you can have the joy that I have. Okay. Is it get presented that way sometimes? Yeah, and that, that doesn't attract anybody. And so Jesus is saying, I want you to have genuine joy, genuine, genuine attitude of peace of mind, peace of heart, that you live above the circumstances to show that there is real strength in Christianity. So he prays for that. And it's the same thing that he had mentioned earlier, my peace I give you, my joy, I give you my word that your joy may be overflowing. He talked about this earlier at the supper. And so here's a fact that is really, really important. When people get around and they start describing who Jesus Christ is. He was a man of sorrows. We understand that. But at the same time, he is a man that presents himself that says, I have great joy. I'm a man of joy. I want these to have my joy. I don't picture Christ as being one who walked around looking like he was forever at a funeral. Okay? That he would present himself with some peace, some joy, that crowds would be attracted to him, not a morose not a, not a depressed individual, but most of the pictures, how does he look? You don't see Jesus smiling a whole lot in, in famous artwork, do you? Okay. So you have Jesus Christ in this whole presentation. Though we know he's a man of sorrows, we also know that he talks a lot about his joy. And he says, I want my disciples to have that. He prays for this. Keep them from evil. I need to take you back so you mark your Bibles. In chapter 17 where he says, in verse 15, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil. Do some of you have a footnote? Do you have a marking in your Bible, in your translation? Keep from the evil one. 
Evil one is more of the rendering. That it's not just keep from evil, but keep from the evil one in reference to help them, keep them from what Satan can do to them. And the reason that he says this is because it says the world's going to hate them. The world is going to try to destroy them. Now, the world hates them because Satan hates Christ. Satan is a murderer. What is Satan going to do? Has he tried to do with Jesus? Try to kill him as a babe? Try to have him killed in, in his home city when he preached in Nazareth? He has attempted at Jesus' life. He's going to attempt at the life of the disciples. And he's going to wreak havoc amongst their, their uh, numbers at times. And he's going to get the upper hand sometimes. And so Jesus is praying because of the hatred of the world, I want you to protect them. Protect them from the satanic attacks. Protect them from the buffeting that will be done. And help them so that they can complete the mission that I have given them. And so then he makes a statement here. He says, none of my disciples have been lost. Though they're in the world, they have not been lost. You keep them. The only one who was quote-unquote lost was Judas, but that was because it was prophesied, it was decreed, it was part of the plan of God that Judas, who was overcome and, and uh, he was indwelt by Satan, that he was one that, according to scriptures, was going to go from Christ. He mentions in this that whole idea, keep from the evil one, which makes us come to the reality Satan is alive and well in this world, that he is opposed to believers. We've got to remember this, that we have an enemy. He really does not, does not like us. In fact, he hates us. He will seek to do harm to believers. He will seek to cause all kinds of chaos in their ministries. Prayer Jesus is showing us prayer is our vital weapon in our arsenal to resist satanic attacks. In fact, he even says it in Gethsemane, pray lest you enter into... Yeah, he's going he's gonna to he's gonna encourage prayer. He does this all the time, that prayer is the essential weapon. Unfortunately, we in 2017, we minimize prayer, not in our heads, but in our work, in our actions. And prayer is the real important ingredient to being uh, involved in this spiritual battle that we have. He's going to pray, number four, he prays, sanctify them sanctify them. The idea is basically keep them apart. Keep them set aside for you. Keep them, keep them so that they're in a place of usability. So that these were set apart to be used for the vessels like in the tabernacle. Set apart to be used for the tabernacle purposes. So he says, God, I, am set, I, am, I was set apart. I sanctified myself to do your will. I want that these guys also be sanctified or set apart that they do your business, your will. That this becomes their course, their mission their journey that they're going through. And he prays for that because he wants them to continue to be faithful, to be set apart despite the attacks that are going to happen to them. Because they're not being taken out of the world, they're going to have to be set apart, sanctified within this world. And so he makes the comment, please, please keep them dedicated. Please help them to be set aside where they are really faithful to you. And then he makes the comment, sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And so he knows, please Father, take your word, make it impacting into their hearts. Use your word to help them to stay on target, to keep focus, to keep their priorities. Here's the reality. You and I 
Well, me more probably than you. We get caught up with our normal everyday routine. We want to really live for the Lord, and we do a good job. And after a period of time, what happens for a lot of us is we just kind of get down to a plateau. And we're plateaued here, and then we need a, a spiritual kick in the pants to get reco- revived, to get reenthused, so that we, hey, let's get back up because we got busy, we got caught up with other things that aren't necessarily evil, but they can kind of make us complacent, complacent distracted. And all of a sudden we need that word of God to give us a shot, to give us a little bit of a kick, you know, that all of a sudden we'd get zoomed back to where we need to be. We joked about it at times that those peoples who have, um, that have allergies, all of a sudden they're affected by it and then you give them that shot of the EpiPen and that resurges. In the trip to Portugal we teased with the teens that they got these cups of espresso that were worth, yeah, figure, around eight or ten cups of coffee. And you get it in this little shot type glass of coffee. And so these kids would drink this espresso and a couple of them got really, hold their hand out. I mean, they were hyper. We were talking, they didn't need the plane to get back to America. Yeah, that, that gives you a shot. We need spiritual espresso at times to just get us back. We, most all of us need that shot periodically. It's the Word of God. It's the Word of God that just, boom, gets us back to thinking right. Every so often we need one of those messages on prayer to get us to refocus, on witnessing to get us to refocus, on love towards one another, forgiving to get refocused. And that, you know, on the family to get us to refocus. And then we get busy and we, we, we're doing things pretty good, but all of a sudden we get complacent again. Oh, we need to get that shot again. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. And so he's praying that God would do that work in their heart. And then he shifts prayers and here's a prayer that is really interesting in aspect. He starts off in verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word. So he's saying, okay, I'm going to pray for future believers who will hear the gospel through these guys and they will respond to it. And some will hear it through these guys, through the people that they talk through, and it'll have that domino effect through generations. So he is actually praying for us in this text. You've probably heard the story. When Alexander the Great was going through the Middle East, he was conquering city after city, Tyre, Sidon. There's lots of prophecies that he fulfilled to a T in how he conquered Tyre and how he built the ramparts exactly like the Old Testament had predicted. So Alexander is coming through, and it's around that 340 AD that he's coming through, and he's coming towards Jerusalem. As he comes towards Jerusalem, the Jews want to spare the city. They go out and their high priest, Yeshua goes out and he's all dressed in white and he has the priest behind him and he comes out with the holy scriptures that he's taken from the temple. And they come and they meet Alexander the Great. And this is recorded in a number of historical documents. That when they meet, Alexander responds and says, I saw this in a dream that I had last night. I saw you people coming out to me. I saw that you were approaching me, and so he's paying attention. He put value in dreams as if it was something that was message of God, and it got his attention. He listens to Yadua, uh, however you want to say his name, Yadua. He listens to him, and he shows him Daniel 7 and 8 that talks about, 7 and 11, excuse me, that talks about the conqueror of the Medo-Persians coming through. And he points out that Daniel had predicted a couple hundred years before how Alexander would sweep through this area. And Alexander realizes that his 
his campaign, his conquering as the leader of the Grecian nation, that it was predicted in Scripture, that the Bible talked about him. And he sees himself in Holy Scriptures. He is impressed. He is moved by this to the point that he calls off his troops. They bypass Jerusalem. They don't attack the city. And they are spared because he believes the God of Jerusalem had written about him hundreds of years earlier. Saw himself in Scripture. But then later on, you know, and, and it impacted him for a short period of time, but later on he goes back to his lifestyle and everything else. But he protected Jerusalem. So when he saw himself in Scripture, it impacted him. You and I are going to see ourselves in the words of Jesus Christ right here. He is talking about us. He is praying for us. Whether or not it impacts is up to you. But he is literally praying for you in this passage when he's praying. He makes these comments and he prays specifically for you and me. Look what he says, starting with verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be what? What's his first concern? that we, we may be one, as you, Father, art in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be what? One, even as we are one. And then he goes, I am them, you and me, that they may be made perfect in what? In what? In one he says that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved me and, uh, and, and love them as you have loved me. His comments through here are focusing on what? More than anything, what is he praying for us? Unity. He's praying for unity. He's praying for our unity even as the Father and the Son are united. That is that we work together, that we serve together, that we have the same goals. And so he's very pointed, mentions it several times, and he makes this comment, the unity is key to our witness. We cannot effectively be a witness if we don't have unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. And he says, okay, I'm sharing with these believers some of my glory, some of the righteousness, the riches, the heavenly gifts that he's given. And our question has come back exactly what is Jesus praying for? When he prays for our unity, what is he talking about in this text? Is he talking that you and I should be like this church in Berkeley, California? There's a church that has in the foyer a passage that says, for all, you are all children of God. And uh, it, right above it, it has pictures of famous characters to show world unity and how everybody is supposed to be united. And these are the spiritual leaders that they say help us to show unity. Jesus is in the middle, but these others are on the, on the same level. Is that the unity he's talking about? That we should be united with whatever Mahatma Gandhi said? I don't think so, friend. I mean, Gandhi was an important philosopher, but was he someone who was devout believer in Jesus Christ? No, no. What about Martin Luther King? What about John Kennedy? Okay, is this what Jesus is talking about, that we are all the children of God, no matter what our belief system? You know what's interesting? They left out a phrase on this passage. Isn't that clever? Okay that you leave out a little portion that really dictates what the passage says. Here's the rest of the verse. For you are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Is there a reason why they left that second part off on that verse? Yeah, yeah, because not everybody there is talking about faith in Jesus Christ. 
Okay? So what unity is Jesus talking about? Unity that is around the truth that Jesus Christ is the one and only. Now, I don't believe this. I don't believe when he's talking about unity that he says there needs to be uniformity. That every one of us needs to act and look and talk and say the same things. And every one of us in uniformity have to have the same standards. I don't believe that. I don't believe that at all. Could we have different standards and still be united in Christ? You're not sure about that? Okay. Some of you would say, I have a standard that I don't, I want to be clean shaven. Okay. Rich has that standard. Well, you did years ago before you could grow a beard. Okay. So, just, does, is this what he's talking about? That we should all have the same look this way? Some of you might say, wait a minute, I think that everybody should wear a tie. If you don't wear a tie, you're not spiritual. You don't want that, do you? No, no. You don't want that standard, do you? Not at all. Can we have fellowship without uniformity? Yes. And should we? Yes, absolutely. Should we have unanimity? Unanimity means that we never have a disagreement. That means in your family there should never be a disagreement. Okay? That means you don't have unity if you have different points of views. No, not at all. Can you have unity with two different points of views and still be united? Absolutely. By the way, can different opinions be helpful? Oh, absolutely. Can it create better unity? Oh, absolutely. So the idea is, the idea here is the oneness of heart and mind, faith and purpose. That even if I have a different standard than you, and even if I have a different opinion than you, that even if I have a different point of view, I can still, with love and respect, get along with you and we can have the same purpose of serving Christ together. And we can understand that we may have some differences. You may look a little bit different. You may eat a little bit different food. You may drive a different car. You may invest in different things. You may decorate differently than I decorate. You may have a TV or not have a TV. That doesn't make any difference. We can still worship and serve and be united in Christ. And that's what he's talking about is in heart and faith that we have the same purpose, the same goals, and that we work together. And though some of you may have different gifts and different talents, or you may have a different way of evangelizing, a different method. Could somebody share the same gospel and do a totally different way of sharing the gospel, different verses, different approach, and be effective? Absolutely. Absolutely. And so what he's talking about is this idea that we work in unity where we are helping, having harmony and humility, working one with another. And so Jesus prays for this. And now here's the big question. This is, a, this is a really important question for you and me. Is he saying that we work together in harmony even where there's a difference of doctrinal beliefs? If somebody has a different doctrine, as long as they believe in Jesus... We should work together. Now that is a very common theme in America. Yes? As long as we believe in Jesus. Okay, well the big question comes is what do you mean by believe in Jesus? Can a lot of people believe in Jesus and not be born again? Yeah, okay, so that's a big thing there. Okay, but just, just to reassure, you know, where we come biblically, we should get along, but we cannot, we should not say, I'm going to get along no matter what, even at the expense of truth. We're going to drop truth. We're going to drop doctrine. We're going to drop belief system because we're supposed to get along. Really? 
Really? Now watch what, he, what these passages explain. In the book of Galatians, okay, when he talks to the believers, Paul is writing to them and he says, if somebody else comes along preaching the word of God, somebody else who comes in the name of Christ, and they preach any other gospel than that what I've preached, you're supposed to let him be in the pulpit. Is that what your, that verse says? It'll let him be what? That means no fellowship. The word is anathema. It has the idea of condemnation. If somebody is coming along, and I don't care what collar they wear, the collar they wear, how they turn it, if they come and say, well, I'm a, I'm a preacher and I believe in the Bible, if they are not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're not supposed to be welcoming them with open arms in the sense of working together with them and saying we all believe the same thing just as it goes contrary to Scripture. That is not the unity he's talking about. In fact, in Romans he says this, Now I beseech you, brethren, mark those who are within the, the, the fellowship who cause division and offenses contrary to the doctrine. If they're teaching doctrine that you have not learned from us, you mark them. You mark them, and he says that you, you, need to, you need not to be united with them. In fact, you're supposed to avoid them. In, in Thessalonians, Paul writes this, We command you, brethren, in the name of, your, of the Lord Jesus Christ, withdraw from every brother that walks disorderly, not after the tradition. Previous verses, he talks about the tradition being the scriptures that he has given them. So they walk not after the tradition which he received of us. If somebody is not doctrinally correct, we're supposed to withdraw from that individual. He says further in the same text, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note him. Have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Yet don't consider him an enemy, but admonish him as a brother. So there's limited fellowship even for somebody who is born again if they are not following the word of God, following the doctrines of scriptures. In 2 Timothy, the passage you all know, study to show yourself approved unto God a workman that needeth not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth, but shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase unto the more ungodliness. Their word will eat. And look at it, he even names people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred. What doctrine is Paul concerned about in this text? What doctrine? End times. Saying that the resurrection is what? Is past. Oh, well, see, we should separate from those who don't teach the doctrine, but as long as they believe Jesus is the Son of God, died, buried, and resurrected, that's all that's important. That's not what Paul says. Paul says end times doctrine is important. The doctrine of the resurrection We can't minimize the doctrine of the resurrection. It's an important doctrine that he says, listen, you've got to stay away from some who would even distort that doctrine. Whoever abides not in the doctrine of Christ has not God. If there come any unto you that bring not this doctrine, don't bring him into your house. Don't even say to him what? Godspeed. In other words, if a cultist comes to your door, don't just say, well, God bless you, have a good day. We're forbidden to say that. I'm not trying to be rude, but I can't even... I tell the cultists when they're at my door, I say, listen, you know, uh, I'm not trying to be rude, but I can't even say God bless you by the Word of God. Why not? Well, that opens up a conversation. Okay? 
and provides opportunity. But that's what the Word of God says. Jude 3, Beloved, I gave all diligence unto you to have the common salvation that was needful to write and encourage you that you earnestly contend for the truth, the faith that was once and all delivered. If a man is a heretic, after the first and second admonition, reject. And so we have all these texts, plus more Revelation is talking about if any man adds to the Word of God or takes away from the Word of God the plagues and the damnation. The point is, is there a time that our unity with somebody who doesn't preach the truth, it has that we, we have to sever that contact. Biblically, the answer is yes. Yes. Are we promoting antagonism? No. No. We're trying to promote truth to the Word of God. And that as those who are following the Word of God, we understand that they're loyal to the truth of the Word of God, we should have harmonious fellowship with those individuals. <clears throat> Jesus prays for something else. He prays for our destiny. As you go on, he makes these comments. And he, <coughs> excuse me. And he talks about, in verse 22, <coughs> excuse me, I'm not going to make it. You're thinking short sermon, short sermon. <laughs> I'm thinking, no, 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 no. And the glory which you have given me, I have given them that they may be one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and that you have loved me. Father, I will that you also, whom you have given me, be with me that where I am, that they may behold my glory which you have given me, for you have loved me before the foundation of the world. His point is, okay, our destiny, he prays the Father to keep us secure. This is a fabulous passage. The passage goes on. It's a really interesting passage where he talks about how keep them because you loved me. Righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known you that you have sent me. I declared unto them your name, and I will declare it that the love wherewith you have loved me may be in them. It's amazing. His hope, mark this down, the hope we have of heaven the confidence we have is based on, we've read earlier in scriptures, the price that he paid, the promises that he made, the prayer he makes right here. This prayer is he's praying for you and me to make sure we are kept saved. Okay? And so he's praying for this, that you and I will be kept safe. He's already told us that we have that hope of heaven. And this text is a fabulous text for the assurance of salvation. Some of you may struggle. I did. I know for three years after I got born again. Am I saved? Am I not saved? Am I saved? Am I not saved? How do we know we're, we're saved? What it, my struggles were, mm, I still battled with sin. Ah, I didn't do what I'm supposed to do. Maybe I lost my salvation. Who was I depending upon? Myself. Myself. My goodness to keep me saved. Look what he says here. Really interesting what he says. God give us, gave us eternal life. It came as a gift from God. He's already prayed that. Now he makes the comment as he's gone through that we are God's gift to Jesus. He gave us to Jesus Christ. Here's the big question. Would God ever take back a gift he gave his son? If he takes back our salvation, he is penalizing Jesus because we're a gift to Jesus. And so the question is, if God took back <clears throat> our salvation, he's expressing some displeasure in Jesus Christ because we're a gift to Jesus. That's just an impossibility. 
Jesus says, I haven't lost anybody given to me. The only one that, that, didn't, that wasn't kept was Judas, but he was never in the fold anyway. And Jesus is saying, okay, you are, you are God's gift to me. I will keep you. Father, you keep them as well. And I have kept everyone that I have. And he prays that we would be kept secure in our salvation. It's a ministry of the Father. It's a display of God's commitment to the Son. I am saved not by my goodness, but the goodness of God and Jesus Christ. I can't lose it because he's given me as a gift to the Son and vice versa. It's an amazing text talking about God's commitment to you and actually God's commitment to Jesus. Jesus' commitment to God. You play right into it. You are a display of their commitment to each other. You, you can't be lost. You can't be forgotten. You can't be put aside. Once you're in Christ, you are in Christ forever. What a fabulous text. He also prays for our love. He prays that our love may be in, that the Father and the Son's love may be in us, that we may work together, that is just like the Father and Son. Promote one another, work with one another, assist one another, listen to one another, comfort one another, minister to one another. He's praying all these things. And so he's prayed for himself. He's prayed for his disciples. He's praying for us. Let's see if we can bring it all together for a moment. Okay? And bring some thoughts here. The Son prayed personally. Okay, if the son did it repeatedly, okay, then obviously we should. When he prayed, he practiced what he preached. He prayed personally. He also prayed, hallowed be thy name. He prayed with real specifics. Let me make an observation. It is not wrong to pray for yourself. Jesus did it. Don't feel, don't, don't get caught up in the super piety that says we shouldn't pray for ourselves. We should. We should. Jesus did it. When we pray, pray with specifics. Our prayer should also include praying for others. Okay, Jesus had done it. He did it here. He demonstrated that elsewhere. When we pray for others, don't just pray for physical needs of one another. Jesus prayed for spiritual growth. He prayed for unity. He prayed for love. He prayed for strength for others. We too should cover our family and friends in prayer for strength to be faithful to God. That's what Jesus prayed for us, to remain loyal. For his disciples, to remain loyal, to be kept from the evil one. We should pray that. Pray that for your kids. Pray it for your spouse. Cover your spouse in prayer. God, help them to be faithful at work. Help them to remain loyal. God's word is much needed to help us to remain loyal. Sanctify them through thy word. Thy word is truth. He did not underestimate the danger of satanic attacks. We would be foolish if we did. There is a real enemy out there. Be careful, be cautious, be prayerful, be in the Word. You're going to need that help. Prayer is your vital defense against satanic attacks. Don't underestimate it. Another thought. He highly valued unity amongst his people. If he did, we should too. We should make it an important part that we put aside the differences as much as possible and work together for the advancement of the gospel. We are kept saved, not by our own goodness, but by the goodness of God and Jesus Christ. That never fails, it never wanes, it is permanent, so our salvation is permanent. Although Jesus says, I pray not for the world, in this one text, he doesn't pray for the lost. There are other times he did. We should too. Okay? But there are some times we don't because we're focused with a different focus at that prayer moment. Another thought. Okay? Joy is the product of prayer, not just life's events. 
He says, you know, here, I want their joy. I want their joy. Circumstances can definitely take away our joy, but prayer can restore it. We're supposed to be overcomers by not quitting, by remaining faithful, by not giving in to the world that we are living in, but being loyal to Jesus Christ. This morning we're going to embark on a different type of series for just a few weeks, and it's going to talk a little bit more about being united. Let's pick up there in the next few minutes. You already got a head start over the others who will join us because you've already covered some of this text.